Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. The year was 1977, and on that Labor Day weekend, over 125,000 fans came to Raceway Park to see the Grateful Dead in Englishtown, New Jersey, on what still to this day was the largest crowd in New Jersey history. The show itself went off peacefully, and although it caused some traffic jams like Woodstock, it certainly was a crowning achievement for our guest today, legendary rock promoter and a nominee this year for the New Jersey Rock Hall of Fame, John Scher. Several generations of music fans, including me big time, have sought tickets to so many of the shows he's put on, first at the Capitol Theater in Passaic and later at the Meadowlands and festival sites all over America. John brought the Stones and the Who to North Jersey, which, trust me, was never going to happen without him. And then, of course, promoted a very young Bruce Springsteen before and during his rise to megastardom. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the man who's truly been one of the inventors of the modern rock concert business. For me, today, speaking to John is kind of like sitting down with the history of rock and roll, except because of COVID, we're sitting in our homes about 20 minutes away from each other. Or as I said, I'd prefer to be in one of our old three great restaurants. None of them are there anymore in the West Orange area. But for those of you listening, you'll remember Pals, Don's, or the Claremont Diner. But of course, they don't exist. <laughs> Welcome, John, to the show. Hi. Just one correction. I was nominated for the New Jersey Hall of Fame, not the New Jersey Rock Hall of Fame. There is no... The New Jersey, Jersey Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah you, that is correct. Yeah. That is absolutely correct. Yeah, I don't think there is a Jersey Rock Hall of Fame. Well, if there was the New Jersey Rock Hall of Fame, you would have been like member number one. So let's, <laughs> but New Jersey Hall of Fame, that is correct. And congrats on that. Hopefully things will work out for, for that for this fall. Well, it's a great honor to, to have this chat today. I cannot tell you the joy your life's work has brought me personally. And of course, millions all over the world that have been at these shows. But I really wanted to start out today kind of to get to the burning question of the day, which is really on all of our minds, music lovers especially. I'm sure theater people are thinking the same thing. But when do you think concerts will return? I mean, is the industry still holding out hope for the fall or winter? Or have we just said, forget it, summer 2021? Well, I think it's very, very unlikely that there'll be any shows in 2020. I think the only thing that will change that is if there's a, a vaccine relatively soon. But that doesn't seem to be in the cards right now. So I'm not really planning on uh, trying to do shows until at least 2021. And, you know, there's there's a lot of uncertainty still, even with that. That's true. That's true. It really It really is very, very hard to forecast. And you know, just when you think it's safe to go back in the water, you know, I just heard four members of the Phillies and and I think at Toronto Blue Jays in Clearwater, Florida, tested positive earlier today. So obviously Florida is dealing with its own. But yeah, Florida, Florida is a mess. Texas is a mess. California is close to a mess. It's the Northeast that that followed the CDC 
suggestions and, um, you know, lockdown. And, uh, you know, most of the Northeast seems to be okay. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. When I look back, just even to the last 20 years and, and, and all of the amazing experiences and locations for me personally, and obviously a lot of fans that have been in, in the pits or GA as it originally was called. I mean, I, I have to believe that that just may be something people read about in the history books before we see that again. You know, it's going to be one day, you know, my grandchildren are going to sit on my lap and said, what was it like, Dad, when, when, when you could be so close, you know, Mick Jagger would literally be spitting on you. I mean, I, I, I would think rapid testing scenarios uh, might be a key, but that's probably something we're not going to see, huh? Yeah, well, look. I think you're right. I think that uh, GA is going to be sort of the last, the last thing. I've never been a real big proponent of GA shows before the, the pandemic because I think that there are always, you know, some people who love that and love the mosh pit and love that. But for the most part, if it's an all GA house, most of the people can't really see. Certainly, you know, the average female, you know, is probably, you know, 5'2", five, 5'3", five, something like that, 5'5", five, five, can't see. The other complaint I've, 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 I've often heard is, is that the fact that you can't go to the bathroom or you can't go buy a beer and get back to the spot you were in bothers people. It bothers them more as they get a little older. A little more responsible, but uh, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think we're we're way, way a long way off from GA. Yeah, that's for sure, and and certainly based on. I mean, I'm just going to go by the end of Bruce's last tour and the last few nights that I happened to be in GA at the Meadowlands and in Philly and in uh, up in New England. Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, yes, very exciting, but. Are really quite a challenge. Try getting out of Foxborough Stadium from the GA. You'll be lucky. It's bad enough to get out of that stadium anyway. So most fans don't realize, I guess, about how COVID-19 has really affected. Let's just look at the music industry. I mean, next month, I'm going to do something I never thought I would ever do. I'm going to go to a concert in my car because I want to see Southside Johnny because that's just something I do every summer. And I'm going to do it at Monmouth Racetrack. I mean, it has to be a better experience than just streaming online, I, I figure. What's your thought about these, these concerts and cars? Because I, I, I have a sense if this goes well, we might see more of this. Well, look, we've looked into it. Right now, from all that we can gather, it doesn't make much financial sense for the artist or for the promoter. You know, the capacity. You're limited. Yeah, very limited, you know. So... I'm going to wait and let some other promoters be the guinea pigs and see. It's just, listen, It's you're right that it's better than just watching it at home on a stream, but not that much. You're hearing the music through the radio. You can't go outside your car. Um, so, you, you know, you can get three friends or whatever and, you know, have your own little party. But, you know, we're watching it closely to see whether it really makes any sense. It has all the potential of being a disaster, and that—that's you know, I, I I have my I have my ticket and everything, but I I still am keeping it as a game day decision with a you know a thousand cars, apparently porta potties. I don't know what they're going to do about food. I I don't really care. I mean, you can bring your own, but just 
thinking about, you know, starting at, I don't know, one o'clock in the afternoon to line up and, and what am I really going to be able to see, let alone, you know, let's say there is a problem with whatever FM type audio they're going to use. I, I, it's, I don't know. I mean, I'm going really more just to see what it's going to be like. I like the guys over at Count Basie, so I, I, I like supporting them. But it should be interesting to see. It's certainly not ideal, but... Listen, first of all, I love Southside. And, you know, if I thought it would be an enjoyable experience for me, you know, I'd go too to try it. I just, for me, I don't think it'll be an enjoyable experience. Part of uh, going to concerts, uh, some of it's really physical. And I mean, not even visible physical. The, you know, you can feel the sound. You can feel the bass. You can, you know, you're not, you know, that's not going to happen in your car. So, like I said, um, my hats off to the people who are trying, but at, at the moment, uh, you know, we'll sit back and watch. And I don't blame you. So how's, how's it changed your life in, in ways you never could have imagined throughout your career? I mean, I, 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 you know, obviously you had plans for 2020 that, that aren't happening. Uh, what are some of the, some examples of some shows that, you know, are kind of out the window right now? Well, we've had uh, three tool shows that'll be canceled, which we're all going to sell out. We've still got a Joe Rogan show at Madison Square Garden the first week of October, but I suspect that probably will get moved. You know, a whole bunch of smaller shows, a couple Bill Maher shows. Everything got wiped out. I mean, everything completely got wiped out. There is no concert industry. The agents, the agencies are at war with uh, with Live Nation and I think AEG over what they're saying they will make offers for once things get going. As an independent, you know, there's a lot there's a lot that's uh, troublesome about being an independent, but there's also, you know, you can have reasonable reasonable discussions, you know, and we are with the agents. And basically, instead of laying down the law because of the COVID, uh, we're basically saying we'll make an offer as if there was no COVID. But we'll, we'll, we'll have an agreement that if the capacity is lowered, if there's uh, um, extraordinary things that you have to do, whether you, know, you have to give a mask to everybody in, at, at, the, at the venue, et cetera, et cetera, that they'll renegotiate. We're really getting to the same place where, where, where Live Nation wants to be. We're just not jamming it down the artists and their agents' throats. I think reasonable people will make reasonable decisions. Right. And, you know, let's face it, some, so many of the artists you promoted and so many of the ones that, that I love and that I was fortunate enough to see in the 70s and the 80s and every other decade since then, you know, these are folks in their 70s and some of them getting up very high in the 70s. So losing a year like this has got to really be crushing. Like just, just this extra crush, you know, when I, I you know, and I think of, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll start with Bruce and Steven, but, you know, we can go down the line, you know, with, 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 with Jagger and Townsend and, and Graham Nash. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter who, Bob Weir, whoever it is, it's got to be tough. Got to be really tough for them. They've really got to kind of work a little harder to keep themselves healthy and in shape and, and away from crowds. Cause that's, that definitely is something that, you know, I've thought about a lot, you know, especially um, with these artists that age. With all those artists that you named, and you got to throw in Bob Dylan also, 
Um, oh, yeah. Who probably yeah. made the best record he's made in 20 years. I was going to get to that in a minute. Oh, my God, what a great record. Ugh. You know, uh, but I think, they, look, they're all, they are all 70 year older. They're all in good shape as best as I, you know, I can tell. Yeah, they take care of themselves. They really do. And they'll, you know, they'll, they'll come back to play if they're in good enough shape so that they're pleased with the performance they can put on. I know Pete Townsend pretty well. You know, if he had a, you know, arthritis or was, you know, bent over or something, he wouldn't play, you know. But as long as he can stand up straight and have some energy, you know, I think he'll he'll continue to play. So, you know, yes, you're right. Losing a year, same thing with sports. Losing a year is tough when you're older. There's no no question about it. I think the desire for for live shows is unquestionably still going to be there. Whether or not people will go, I don't think in big numbers they're going to go until there's a vaccine. I think that we may get an all clear, especially in the Northeast, but I think that especially the, you know, the sort of 40 plus audience is going to be very hesitant to go. So, you know, it, that, that's, that's an unknown that we don't have, that, that we don't have an answer to right now. Yeah, no, we don't. So, well, why don't we just go back in time and, and just hope for the best for the future? Because the past is, is certainly something I, I really want to talk about. And with all my guests, I like people to tell their first story, which is really the one you're born with. And as we mentioned earlier, you, you know, it began not far from where we are right now in, in West Orange, New Jersey. And I would imagine music was a big part of your youth growing up. Were your, were your parents into music? Did you play an instrument? It's interesting. Actually, I was born in Newark. First couple of years of my life, I, I was in Newark. As I got older, but still probably single digits or just maybe double digits, 11 or 12, I have an older brother. And my parents, who absolutely understood nothing about what rock and roll was going on. They were Sinatra, Liberace, big band people. There was some music in my, in, in my house, but not a, not a lot. But... They felt when rock and roll started to look like it's the real thing. Um, I remember the first music experience I had in person wasn't even a concert. It was a movie. It was my parents taking us to see Elvis Presley, his movie, and uh, had to go to New York to see it. It wasn't, wasn't, wasn't in Jersey. But my first live experience was you know just around that time. And again, my parents didn't like the music. You know, they just, you know, they, they were typical doting parents, you know, we were, we were, you know, middle class, but, you know, tickets weren't expensive in those days. So we went a number of times to Brooklyn, to both the, uh, the Brooklyn Paramount and Brooklyn Lowe's, I think it was, but mostly Brooklyn Paramount, which in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, one of two very famous disc jockeys, Alan Freed or Murray the K, would put on a number of times a year, maybe four times a year, a review. And I was brought and it just blew my mind. No matter how young I was, it just blew my mind. You know, Murray Decay had this certain image and he had dancers with him. Both those theaters had stage elevators so that, you know, it was nonstop for a few hours. You know, one act would be on the lip of the stage. When they were done, the stage would go down 
curtain would come up on the main stage and boom, there's the next act. I was fascinated. I saw some amazing people very early on, not even really realizing their importance for many years. I've known uh, uh, Lance Freed reasonably well over the years. So I, you know, I asked him a lot of questions uh, and he was just a kid too. But, you know, the rules for these shows were if you got hits, you can play all of them. If you don't have hits, you're not getting on the show. And if you've only got two hits, those are the two songs you're going to be able to play. You know, and there was always, you know, five, six, seven acts on it, you know, and I saw Fats Domino. I saw all kinds of acts, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard. I saw them all when I was very young. So that sort of was the spark in my life. But I understand the Beach, the beach Boys came to the West Orange Armory and you didn't get there. <laughs> well, they, they were, this must have been, I'm trying to guess, but it was, the, it was the reasonably earlier mid-60s, certainly before I drove. And so me and a friend of mine, Mike Figer, we, uh, we hitched, you know, a couple of miles from our houses down to the, uh, the armory. We were so naive. We, you know, we, we didn't buy tickets or try to buy tickets. You know, we got there. We figured we'd pay at the door. Well, it was completely sold out. We, you know, we couldn't get in. So as, as best we could, we, we hung around, you know, outside and listened to a little of the music. But, uh, you know, at a young age, I learned you got to buy a ticket. Yep, that's that's kind of the only way to get in. Speaking of, you know, musicians that I'm concerned about, Brian Wilson was, I'd add to that list too, of someone uh, not sure we'll get to see again. I don't know if this, I think this actually happened to you in high school, but you were put in charge of the junior prom. You were able to land, honestly, one of the great acts of the day, but things turned out a little bit differently than you would expected. Yeah, they they, they sure did. Well, I got uh, a friend of mine, Billy Height, who now has become Dr. William Height, and is uh, the chief oncologist for Johnson and Johnson, and also founded the New Jersey Cancer Institute. We, you know, we grew up on the same street. We were friends. So, in, in the school I went to, which was West Orange Mountain High School, now West Orange High. Yes, there were, <laughs> right. there were two high schools, and not anymore, but more then. Billy uh, was the uh, president of the student body. And we were friends, and he named me the one of the two junior prom chairman. And and you know it, it, the the rules were in those days the juniors put on the prom and had to run it and pay for it, et cetera, et cetera. But the seniors came for free. So Billy, you know, when Billy told me he was going to make this appointment, he said, "This better be the best prom that ever was." So, <laughs> so we had the meetings. You know, we had you know sort of a music budget. Somehow we conned a little bit more money out of the school. I went off to try to book a real act, plus the wedding bar mitzvah band. And really, it was just, it was dumb luck. You know, I actually went to the Yellow Pages. You know, there were Yellow, <laughs> yellow Pages then. I found and I met a much older gentleman named Otto Sternberg, who was running a company called Monarch Entertainment. He was... Pinky Lee's manager at one point. So he was a real, real old timer. Very nice guy. Had no clue what, what, you know, the current music scene was, but he knew how to book acts. He knew the agencies, you know. So, uh, you know, we went through a bunch of lists. I had a number of meetings with him and there were all kinds of acts. 
that were in our price range at the time, which was very little. I mean, it might have been a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. We made an offer to the Chiffons, who had a couple of big hits right around that time, and that was it. And we, uh, you know, announced it to the school, and you know, uh, I was a hero for a while. I'm sure getting a date for that junior prom was, you know, <laughs> you're the guy that's bringing the Chiffons, boy. <laughs> so uh, now the, the the end of the story is a little more tragic in that they didn't show up. <laughs> and so I was sitting there in my <sighs> tuxedo with my date and uh, <laughs> felt, you know, about one inch tall. But, you know, I got over it. And, uh, you know, I love the process of, 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 of booking the shows. So when I went to college, I went to LIU in Brooklyn. In my sophomore year, there were posters all over campus saying, you know, if you want to join a concert committee, you know, come to so-and-so. I went to the meeting and it was probably, I don't know, 75 students there. And the president of the student body walked us through how much money he had gotten from the administration, you know, to put on a concert. And by that time, LIU owned the Brooklyn Paramount. It became part of the campus. So we had a place to put it on. The president of the student body says, okay, does anybody know how to book an act? And I looked around and nobody raised their hand. So I, I raised my hand. I said, yeah, I know. You know, told the, the Siobhan story. I got the job. We, we booked, a, um, you know, what was then a really good concert, uh, Tim Harden, Jerry Jeff Walker, and, and Melanie. Not particularly famous in these days, but but still. And it did really well. You know, I think it sold out. I booked it through Otto. After that happened, I called Otto and I said, Otto, if I can book more shows like this, will you split the commission with me? And he said, yeah, sure. So I called every one of my friends in all over the, the, the country in college, uh, University of Missouri, University of Wisconsin, Michigan, Penn State. Rutgers, Boston University, all over the place. And I said to all my friends, get on the concert committee. Get on the concert committee and tell them you know how to book shows. You'll book them through me and I'll split my commission with you. Probably from uh, my sophomore year through the end of my junior year, I must have booked, I don't know, 100 college shows with some big acts. And then I knew that was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Concert committee. I mean, I, I, I have a, just a quick funny story. I, I went to school in DC at GW and I immediately got involved in the concert committee. And the first guy I met was a guy uh, whose name at the, at the time, his first name was uh, Alex. His first name now is Alec. I give away the story. It's Alec Baldwin. He and I, he was about two years older and I think because I was interning at DC 101, I had made some tremendous connections. I was actually interning for a very, very young Howard Stern with just me and Howard there at the time. But I had the opportunity to just meet all of these people. And suddenly, GW and Lisner Auditorium, which the school owned, we, we had the opportunity to bring in on their first tour, Elvis Costello with the police, the Knack. 
The Clash, which, you know, I know is one of the classic shows that you did. Um, we always claimed that WRGW, we were a bunch of, you know, young jerks saying that we broke The Clash, which obviously we didn't. <laughs> but, you know, having that opportunity and ironically, a lot of it with Alec Baldwin, although to be honest, the only act he ever booked was Kenny Loggins. I think I booked some, not nothing wrong with Kenny Loggins, but I, I, I booked a couple of the cooler names. But yeah, I mean, including Southside, of course, and the Good Rats, because the Good Rats were just a standard, you know, at that point. <laughs> During that same time period, I dropped out of college after my junior year. Stupid, but nevertheless, hasn't hurt my my uh, career. And a friend of mine, who later worked for me for a long time, was the concert chairman at American. And they, they suckered the administration into big bucks, at least what big bucks were then. He booked them through me, and uh, we brought uh, a whole bunch of shows. They were all outdoors, though, so it was only in the late spring and in the early fall. But uh, we brought, um, trying to remember, we brought Leon Russell when it was the height of his, and we brought, and we brought the Grateful Dead. That was part of the beginning of my relationship uh, with the Dead. The deal with the concerts there was the university let us do them, you know, on I guess what was the baseball field or whatever but couldn't advertise them. They didn't want anybody but American students, which was fine, except for when the dead came. The dead came, word got out, probably had 25,000 people there when you know, the other shows were maybe seven, 8,000. But Bert didn't get in any trouble, and uh, you know it was a memorable day. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I can only imagine what that was like on – on American University's campus. So let's jump a little bit to uh, the early 70s. And everything kind of changed, especially here in New Jersey, when Bill Graham, uh, who kind of the, the dean of uh, rock promoters in, in the early days, he controlled really everything and when it came to music in America. And he closed the Fillmore East in New York City, which sadly I never got, you know, wasn't quite of the age to go to. My brother did see uh, Jethro Tull warm up for Zeppelin he, and Frank Zappa. So I hear from him because he's seven years old or more about those shows. But suddenly Jersey was open for business and you had, let's say, a capital idea. I mean, let's talk about those days. I mean, you, you know, Passaic, New Jersey, for those of you that might be listening and other countries that, that listen to this show, was not something that you would consider the epicenter for rock music. Yet, for many, many years in New Jersey, it was. So how, how did that all begin? And then kind of take us up to end maybe with the Rolling Stones and, of course, the, the classic Bruce shows. Well, look, you know, I was, you know, I was hip deep into, into the business. We were doing shows around Jersey when the Fillmore was still open. Graham had a exclusivity clause that was, uh, I think, either 75 or 100 miles. I think 75 miles from the Fillmore that the acts couldn't play anywhere else. So the only acts I could get were acts that were basically American acts that toured all year. You know, the European acts, the English acts, you know, they came for one tour a year and then went back to Europe. So we, we did some shows over the years uh, at Uppsala College, uh, at Rutgers, the old barn, and then eventually the newer rack. And Jadwin probably at Princeton. Or? Yeah, um, nope, didn't do it, but became friends with the guy who did do it. Um, you know, and you know when Englewood, when when the Bergen Pack was uh, uh, the John Harms Theater did shows up there. 
uh, did shows and lots of shows, you know, started doing shows in, in Asbury. So Graham closes to Fillmore. Now I was a, I was an absolute Fillmore rat. I, you know, in the two years from my senior year of high school till he closed it, I probably saw a hundred shows there. It was the most amazing, magical place that I had ever been. The sound was great. I mean, what Graham did, look, and I had a roller coaster relationship with Graham over the years, but what Graham did was bring what was then current technology into the rock and roll business. Much better sound systems, better lights. It was a place that you could go and you, 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 fe- you felt great about just being there. It was about, I want to say about 2,500 seats. So I saw all kinds of brilliant shows there. But while I was trying to compete in Jersey, I couldn't get enough, really enough shows. But then Bill, you know, all of a sudden woke up one day and decided he was going to close it. And it's sort of humorous to me because the, the reason he had a big press conference, the reason that he gave that he was closing with the acts were getting too greedy. He didn't want to put up with it. Well, the acts, <laughs> you know, the deals then were you know, 25% of what they are now, even even taking, you know, the time lapse into consideration. And I think that he regretted it almost from the day it closed. But what it did is it gave me an opportunity. I wasn't going into New York against it, but it gave me an opportunity, having done these shows in colleges and small theaters in Jersey, to go out and look for a bigger theater. You know, Passaic is a real blue-collar town, no question about it. No real safety problems, but a blue-collar town. But it it had actually two, three at one point, real big old theaters, you know, that were, were, were built in the, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. And the Capitol was one of them. Uh, it was – the bones were were, 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 were good. And first I, I made a deal with the people who, uh, who owned it to rent it. And then a couple of years later, we made a deal to buy it. And we followed, first of all, you got to remember, from those early days right through now, I've been very fortunate to have incredible staff people, incredible, all right? Now, in 71, 72, there were kids that were, you know, just coming out of college at, at, you know, at Rutgers, at NYU, at Uppsala, which doesn't exist anymore, that, you know, loved music and had you know, a certain knack for certain things, you know, you know, some of the kids who, you know, majored in, uh, you know, in recording, you know, film students, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, early, early on, we were able to put together a staff that was of our age, maybe some of them were a little bit older than me, who loved the music and constantly strove to, to put on the most excellent shows that you could, you, you possibly could. And I've been fortunate to keep that kind of staff right up to today. Uh, so, you know, at, at Capitol opened and the first show was uh, Jay Giles. Um, come on, John, we know this. Peter Frampton's first band. Uh, oh, 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 um, um, oh, my God. Wow. These are two senior moments, folks. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah it, it'll come. It'll come. Yeah. It'll come. Them together. Frampton had just left the band, but the band was still pretty big. Show sold out. And then I think that was probably, 
I'm not sure if that was the first time we did Southside on New Year's, or I know we did BB King once on New Year's. We did Blood, Sweat, and Tears once on New Year's, but Humble Pie. Yes, you got it. Good. <laughs> and uh, Frampton had been replaced by a guy named Clem Clemson, who was a wicked great guitar player. And years later, when I managed Jack Bruce and we went out at Jack Bruce and Friends tour, Clem was the guitar player. Anyway, so we started doing shows there. And to be perfectly honest with you, almost every show sold out. Almost every show sold out. And, and we didn't lose money on any show until June of that year. Every single show, if it didn't sell out, it certainly made a profit. So, you know, I figured, you know, this is a good thing. This is a good business to be in. Absolutely. And you had, well, you had a great reputation. I mean, every, everybody knew you were going to get the best shows you could possibly get. I mean, there was just no, it was never, I mean, at least for me, I don't know how many shows. It, it was, everyone was great. Yeah. Well, look, you know what it was? It was, it was New Jersey post the 67 riots in Newark. Suddenly New Jersey was this huge population you know, middle and higher incomes, but there was no city. So there was no real gathering place because until really, until NJ Pack opened, there wasn't any place that people felt safe or, or or wanted to go to. So, you know, I must have spent a couple of years with statistics, with how many people lived in New Jersey, what the, what, what the average income was, the density of the population. And little by little, you know, I got shows. The agency that, that booked the Humble Pie showed it was Humble Pie Jay Giles, by the way. You know, they saw it from the, from the beginning. So they started selling me, and they were the biggest agency at the time, premier talent. Like I said, everything sold out or came very close to it. So it started to be, you know, a place where people wanted to play, where the acts wanted to play. They'd ask their agents, their managers, how come we're not playing the capital? So as sort of the legend grew, you know, we did all kinds of things that the average promoter at that point wasn't doing. We had our own internal uh, chefs, kids that were in uh, Culinary Institute or just left Culinary Institute. So, you know, in those days, the average promoter gave the act, you know, a, a, a deli platter. The deli platter, exactly. Just just go just go watch Almost Famous and, and see what they're eating. Yeah. yeah. But we had, you know, we built a kitchen, a first-class kitchen, and, and – uh, the acts themselves and the roadies loved coming to the Capitol. Did the local politicians uh, like it? I mean, there must have been. Well, there was a good mayor. I think his name was Goldman, who was, you know, a younger guy, meaning younger. He was probably in his middle or late 30s, you know, but I was in my very early 20s. He got it. He got it. But there was a city council. And this was the huge generation gap of, of the 70s. Who, who didn't get it. We were bringing dirty, in their minds, that we were bringing dirty hippies into their town. And uh, there was one guy in particular who was a city council president. I can't remember his first name, but his last name was Bruce. And he was relentless, absolutely relentless in trying to shut us down. Well, we managed to stay open. We closed for the summer of uh, 72 to go down to Asbury, start doing shows in, in, in Asbury at uh, the casino arena at first, and then later at Convention Hall. This guy was, you know, as bigoted and as redneck as anybody to this day I've ever met. And he, you know, we, we had a show once at uh, Roosevelt Stadium uh, in Jersey City. He sigged the cops on the Capitol 
you know, got a warrant. And, you know, all the only people who were at the Capitol were a couple of people in the box office and, you know, everybody else was at the stadium with us. And for, the, for those that don't know, Roosevelt Stadium was the minor league baseball stadium for the New York Giants uh, before they moved out to San Francisco. And, and John produced some just wonderful, wonderful shows out there. You were covering some, some really, really interesting ground. So my guess would be when the Rolling Stones come knocking, I bet you some of those people were looking for front row tickets. Yeah, well, what, what, what really <laughs> happened, so, you know, that whole year went by. I thought I was indestructible. I booked one more show in June before we moved to Asbury. And I booked Mala, was or probably still is, Carlos Santana's brother. And he had one big hit. I said, you know, we're bulletproof. Everything's going to do well. So we booked it and it bombed. And I lost a bunch of money. So it knocked me off my high horse a bit. So then we went to the first season in, 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 in Asbury a couple of years later. And you have to understand, if you look at the list of shows at the Capitol, it looks like nothing but superstars played there. But they were acts early in their career, all right, right up until the, the Stones came. You know, they were the Clash and Talking Heads and, and R.E.M. And they were pretty big acts, but, you know, they weren't the Rolling Stones. So I got a phone call one day from uh, the Stones manager at the time, a guy named Peter Rudge, and said, uh, the band would like to play the Capitol. And I, and I said, come on. <laughs> what year is this, John? This is probably, I don't know the list in front of me, but mid-70s at some point. Maybe, yeah. And finally, he convinced me that he wasn't kidding me. We booked two nights. We went through all kinds of elaborate, jumped in so many hoops to make sure that the kids really got the phone. Because I've been, I've been a, a, an anti-scalping person, I think, probably since I was born. But certainly when... That's a whole other show. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a losing battle, actually. But So we did, we did the shows. And the first day, uh, the first day of the show, the police... I, I always hired about a dozen Pase cops who, you know, were very much in our favor, weren't part of the of the Councilman Bruce crew. But, you know, we we set up barricades along Monroe Street so that, you know, no cars could, could go through there. Little by little, you know, we really worked hard to to inform the ticket holders don't come early, yada yada yada. And it, it was completely calm. It, it was great. And then about Three o'clock in the afternoon, enrolled, I think it was an NBC you know, a camera crew. And then over the next hour, there were five camera crews there. Now, remember, there was no cable television then. Nope. Two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen. Yeah. That's it. And it was, you know, and it was, it was, you know, ABC, NBC. I'm not sure there was a Fox then, but there was a Channel 5. Metro Media, NBC, right? I think it was, yeah. You know, 9 and 11. So there, there's five right. camera crews yep. there. So they're inside setting up, and I'm outside in front of the marquee hanging out with a couple of the cops that I, that I was friends with. And all of a sudden, walking towards us is this guy, Councilman Bruce. And I looked at uh, sort of the head cop that we had, a guy named Steve Antel. Still, still around. Great guy. And I said, oh, shit. You know, here's trouble. So there was one camera crew out that was wanting to interview me. So Bruce walks down and I say to the, uh, to the camera people, don't record this, please. <laughs> you know, this, 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 this could be ugly. 
So uh, Councilman Bruce walks right up to me, gives me a big hug, turns to the cameraman and say, we're so proud that the Capitol Theater is here. And he ended up being able to say it on TV. And, you know, so it was as hypocritical as anything that, you know, ever happened. But, you know, once that happened, then, you know, the floodgates pretty much opened. I think the next year or two years later, The Who came and played. Genesis came and played, I think, a day before or a day after they played Madison Square Garden. Because remember, you know, in the early days, in the 70s, there was no arena in Jersey. Until 76. Yep, Springsteen, of course. So, you know, we became a real stop in the worldwide touring business. Yeah, you just can't talk music in New Jersey. You actually can't even talk music in the Northeast in the last 50 years without talking about the Capitol. And you mentioned Bruce. You kind of picked up on him pretty early in the early 70s when he was really just starting out with Steel Mill, right? Yeah, well, I the first job I ever had in the business between my freshman and sophomore year of college, there was a club in Asbury called the Sunshine Inn. Only lasted for for a few years. And again, because of uh, my Chiffon's history, I was able to talk to the guy, I think his name was Bob Fisher, into hiring me to book shows. And sort of like, not quite the house band, but Steel Mill, you know, played there a lot. And I became friendly with Bruce. I became friendly with then Miami Steve, now Steven Van Zandt. And little by little, I became pretty well friends with, with everybody in the band. And that lasted for quite a few years. We played a lot of shows. We played them in colleges at what's now Kane, but used to be Newark State. Which was the show where, if I recall, John Sebastian was the um, main event. And where was that? That was at the Capitol. Sebastian was headlining. Springsteen and the E Street Band were, were, were the opener. You know, in those days, I used to get to the theater really early for the sound checks and stuff. So... Um, now, John Sebastian was a big act at that time. So we get there and uh, the E Street Band is starting their sound check. So I'm sitting down in the, the orchestra section. Sebastian comes and sits down next to me. Very nice man. And so they went through 45 minutes of a sound check, maybe an hour. And they were as good as anybody up to that date has ever been, those early E Street Bands. When they were done... Sebastian turned to me and said, John, there's not a chance on earth I'm going on after that guy. <laughs> so I said, what do you want me to do? You're the headliner. The tickets say John Sebastian. He said, I'm not going to follow them. So I went backstage and I was still pretty friendly with Bruce. And I told him the exact story. He said, you know, and he said, sure, we'll close. No problem. You know, it's a, a sweet story to, to tell. Yeah, yeah. No, it really is. And why did the Capitol well, – you know, I, obviously the Meadowlands got built. Giant Stadium got built. I was at the first show ever at Giant Stadium, which is not my first concert. I had been to some earlier, but, you know, certainly one of the more memorable ones with uh, Steve Miller, Pablo Cruz, the Eagles, and just, just great, yeah, great we, shows. We promoted all those Giant Stadium shows. Those were amazing. And to be a senior and junior and senior in high school while that was happening was was really, really incredible. And uh, and then the Meadowlands opened, uh, you know, and the Burn Arena. And obviously, Bruce opened the arena and you were involved with those shows. What I wanted to get to is the Capitol itself getting kind of thrown down 
you know, I was thinking about this the other day with the stone pony and, you know, it survived, you know, all these years for so many different reasons, yet kind of the capital had to go. And obviously you made a decision, a very, very smart decision in bringing a lot of the shows to the Meadowlands. But is that really kind of the main reason that that was it? What happened, you know, this is the late 80s and not only was the Meadowlands Arena built, but there are, you know, arenas, new arenas all over the country. And so the industry sort of changed gears. Lots and lots of shows at the Capitol were two shows in one night, you know, seven and 10 or eight and 11. I remember one show with Hart. And if I recall, Hart, I think, had an eight o'clock and 10 o'clock. And then they came back afterwards. I mean, of course, there's the famous Bruce Southside New Year's show, which went on till two or three in the morning and everyone in the world claims they were there. I was actually there, but there were people, everyone in the world says they were there as well as the uh, radio show. But I also remember Hart coming out and playing some Zeppelin music after they did their main, their second set. I mean, these were, these, these were really iconic shows. No question about it. You know, no, no question about it. So really what happened was the industry sort of turned its head away from theaters. At that point, the Fillmore had been closed for a long time. But, you know, there just weren't very many shows. The book, the acts that would be headlining the Capitol, if they were doing two shows or so, they wanted to headline the Meadowlands. If they were single show headliners, they wanted to play second build at the arena. So Arena Rock was really brought along very quickly at that time period. So we got down to, I think, the last full year that the Capitol was open. I think we only did like nine shows. It was too expensive to keep it up. It's a big building, held 3,500 people. You had to keep it air conditioned and heated, even if it wasn't a show. You know, property taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And it just, in that last year, it became uh, a losing proposition. Just around that time, you know, I got an inquiry of somebody who wanted to buy it. And, you know, it was a very, very hard decision. One actually that I regret. But, you know, the price was right. And um, we sold it. And, you know, it wasn't until I'd say the last 10 years, 15 at most, that there were a lot of theater shows again. So for the rest of uh, late 80s, 90s. All arenas and. And, yeah. and amphitheaters. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So this may seem like a silly question. And I actually wanted to get to this earlier. But many people really don't know what a promoter does. I mean, if you had to write a job description today, and obviously very different job description in 1971 than in 2020, I mean, two, uh, two different worlds. I mean, obviously, you know, you take on all the risk of the artist getting sick or dying. I was thinking about Michael Jackson and, you know, the AEG people and what happened there. And I think Bill Graham once said, the only thing that's consistent in this business is that the promoter is always being asked to take less and less. But from from your perspective, if you had to kind of sum it up of what the the job of a promoter really was, how would you put it? Well, it's not easy. You know, I've taught I've I've taught a couple of courses at uh, NYU and at Syracuse. So obviously, kids that are in college now have no idea who I am. So in in both cases, you know, I had to give them a little personal history, and especially because these were kids that were studying to become content promoters, which, you know, I found, I to this day find hysterical, but I do too. <laughs> I think early on the concert business was 
motivated by people like me, although it's so funny because when I really broke into really being a major concert promoter in the early mid-70s, almost all the promoters around the country were like 10 years older than me. I was the kid. There was no hierarchy really of adults, you know, because somebody who's 30 years old isn't quite an adult yet. And the same thing with agents. And so, you know, it was it was sort of a fraternity that the agents, the managers, and the promoters all joined to. And therefore, the finances of it were much fairer, you know, up until, say, the earlier mid-90s, much fairer. Both the acts and the promoters, you know, could make a very good living. So, you know, how do I describe what I do? Um, one part, an A&R guy, you know, but I, I'd say if, 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 if I had to pin one word or two words, I'm a marketer. Sure, it's about picking the right act, but it's also about understanding what the ticket price should be and, you know, where you should be advertising the show, you know, what kind of free publicity can you get? So, you know, that's what I think, you know, it really is. Now, it continues that, you know, I've certainly still got to be an A&R person, although I have, you know, people who are younger than I am that, you know, are very, very good at it, you know, and you need to try. I mean, my cardinal rule is really remember the customer is always right. And that's not quite true because, you know, sometimes there's some assholes, but for the most part, you try to run a show and all the ancillary things around it so that it's an inviting place that people want to come. Right. And you're dealing, you're also dealing with, a, you know, obviously tremendous talent and with, with tremendous talent, whether it's in showbiz, sports or, or music, you're dealing with a lot of egos. And I've, you know, I've been around a number of artists over, over the years and, and the majority, you know, are, are incredible, incredible people. But obviously over the years, you find some that aren't. How were you able to handle the, all these egos in a room? You know, I mean, I, I, Again, bring I, I go back to almost famous uh, all the time, and I just think of the bus scene and and the plane, and you know, was 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 there a lot of that with the bands, you know, just not getting along, and and uh, or one, the artists just thinking they were such a diva, or was that just sort of, you know, on the fringe? Well, I, I think it was on on the fringe. To, to be honest with you, I had a, a bit of a different style than some promoters did. It was never important to me to really have a relationship with the acts themselves, right? Because, they, you know, they had 50 promoters around the world that, you know, they couldn't be friends with all of them. But so I was always cordial and we always, you know, did all of the things that, that you know, made it easier for them from, you know, from, from food to dressing room furniture, et cetera, et cetera. For me, I early on realized that the close relationships – that would make me, uh, you know, more successful were with the agents and the managers. Now, there are, there certainly are a bunch of acts that I, you know, ha have a, a, a good and sometimes close relationship with, but almost across the board, that's because they were, they made the first step in wanting to be friendly. I'd always go, you know, to the show and always thank everybody and, shake their hand. But, you know, there were, there were, there were people, you know, acts, some big acts, Townsend from, in my life for sure, 
that, you know, became friends, you know, and then, yes, are there, are there difficult people? Yes, there are unquestionably difficult people. And the best thing you can do is not get in their face, you know, and then there are other people who, you know, just aren't friendly. So like I said, I wasn't calling them to book the shows. I was calling their agents and managers. I've said this for many, many years because we've managed a lot of acts over the years. Every single act that I've ever gotten to know well, without exception, all right, has a screw loose. Some of them have a big bolt loose, all right? But God giveth and God taketh away. And even some of the nicest guys and women that you, that, that you meet and, you know, and you think they're just fabulous people, every once in a while they'll go off and, you know, and do something nuts. Not often, but you've got to be cautious with talent, unquestionably. And, and you can't push yourself on them too much. Some will like that, you know, will love to have the free dinner, you know, that you might take them to. But for the best part, there's not a lot of close personal relationships. There's personal relationships. And I certainly had a personal relationship with most of the members of the dead. Well, yeah, I mean, for those that don't know, um, John handled everything west, east of the Rockies for the Grateful Dead, you know, for pretty much most of their run and actually had, you know, the, as we mentioned earlier in the show, you know, an incredible concert. There's still, I don't think in the history of New Jersey, there will ever be more than 125,000 people at one show, all pretty well behaved, by the way, in Englishtown, New Jersey. Yeah, there was a lot of traffic and everything. And and John also was involved in Woodstock 94, which had a lot of tremendous acts, maybe not some of the best behavior yeah, at the 90, time. 94, 94 other than the rain and the mud, audience was fine. Yeah, yeah, overall and and I just want you to tell one story before we before we go cuz I love this story about Crosby Stills and Nash at Roosevelt the night Nixon resigned. I I think this is really timely in many ways but really just says a lot about someone I had the opportunity to work with when I worked with Maureen and Steve Van Zandt on Little Kids Rock and that's Graham Nash. So tell that story. I would love to hear that. Graham's an absolute sweetheart. He may have a screw loose but I've never seen it. Well, look, you got to remember, this was in the very turbulent 70s. The Vietnam War was still raging. Richard Nixon was the president. I'm not sure whether I'm quite ready to make the comparison whether he or Trump are worse, but he was bad. He was bad. He was a crook. You know, he, he had people who worked for him break into the National Democratic headquarters. And so to my generation... He was a despised human being. And turns out we booked uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. It was all four of them at Roosevelt Stadium and uh, sold out right away, 35000 I think. And I had a great relationship with the Jersey City government. A guy named Paul Jordan was, was the mayor, and his uh, chief of staff was a guy named Art Della. And so we had been doing shows for a couple of years before that, never any problem. You know, they had this great old stadium that still was, you know, in decent condition and nobody used it except for high schools. And so when we got a few weeks before the the CSNY show, you know, politics were as they are almost today, were just the only thing people were talking about. Nixon had been found out about about Watergate. And as time went on, more and more bad things. So 
Paul Jordan, good mayor, very, very good for the city of Jersey City, probably was the first one, you know, post the Korean War that really started to turn the city around. He was as nervous as any human being and said, you should cancel the show. I said, what do you mean cancel the show? He said, there's going to be riots. It's going to be terrible. All right. So I said to him, no, there's not going to be riots. Now, this isn't he didn't know that Nixon was going to resign that day. He just knew that CSNY were very political. Oh, they, they, they wrote the most famous political songs of that generation. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> so he was just scared. And his chief of staff, Artello, very good guy, too, jumped on the wagon. Him, too. You got to cancel the show. You know, you, you got to do this. You got to do that. So, you know, it got a little rough, but we ended up keeping the show in. They dispatched, you know, a very significant number of people police, Jersey City police, to the venue. The show started and there were probably somewhere between five and 10,000 people outside the gates. But the building was built like the Rock of Gibraltar. There, there, you know, there wasn't really getting in. And they were fine. You know, they were fine. They were in the parking lots and, and they were fine. Of course, it was an outdoor show, so you could hear the music. And, you know, it was a little tense, but not, not, not terribly. So we're, uh, show starts, can't remember who opened, but the show starts, packed the place, but not, you know, not overrun. I'm backstage with, with some staff and we had like a, a little portable television with rabbit ears to see what was going on because, you know, we, his resignation did not come as a surprise. Right, right, no. Didn't know what day was going to happen, but it seemed clear that he was either going to resign or get impeached. We're watching the TV on and off, and suddenly, whatever you know, network we were watching broke news broke in that he had resigned. So, I know this sounds sort of terrible, but boy, it put a smile on a lot of people's faces. Of course, of course, the country needed healing. Yeah, so they they were you know in the middle of the set, they didn't know anything. And so I walked up on stage and I whispered in Graham's ear, all right, what had happened. And so they, they, you know, they finished the song. They all got together. Obviously, he told his other members and they, they announced it to the audience, which went crazy. They went into Long Time Gone and then Ohio. And just at that point, because... The mayor and and the police obviously knew that Nixon had resigned and they completely overreacted and the mayor ordered the police to open up all the gates. So there's, like I said, somewhere between five and 10,000 people, you know, in there. They weren't rioting. They they weren't doing anything. But the mayor was completely freaked out that that people would get, get, get hurt. But there wasn't any room for another five to 10,000 people, you know, without it being uncomfortably crowded. And I thought they were nuts. I thought they were nuts when they wanted to cancel the show. Uh, I thought to this day they were nuts that they let the police open up all the gates. But thank God nobody got hurt. Yeah. I mean, that's the key is that it, it wound up, you know, those were people there. Sure, never forgot that night, but people did protest very or no it wasn't even protest they were probably just celebrating yeah. in in a very in a very peaceful way absolutely and it was 
clearly one of the most no- emotional nights of my of my career. And you know, it was happenstance. You know, nobody when I booked it, nobody knew you know this was going to happen. But it was a really cool evening. I'm sure it was. And and you've you've been part of so many cool evenings. I guess it's impossible to to nail down your top two or three of shows that you promoted. That would certainly be one of them for for that reason. But is there a couple others that just stand out? Hey, I've been asked that many times. It's a Sophie's Choice question. I, I know. And, and yeah, well, you know, and two or three can't come up with two or three. But you know, the Springsteen Southside New Year's Eve was definitely one. The Clash down in Asbury Park over Memorial Day weekend was one for sure. Simon and Garfunkel shows for sure. The Stones and the Who at the Capitol for sure. You know, I can go on and on. Well, I mean, the music industry today, I don't have to tell you and or any of the listeners is is a whole different world. The business of live music, the live experience, especially since record sales are kind of a thing of the past, in many ways is dysfunctional. And like I said, we could do an entire show on maybe what went wrong and how it can be fixed. But the reality is there's still there's still a lot of great artists out there. Any new artists? We'll end with two things. First of all, Bob Dylan, as you mentioned earlier, if you haven't been able to get his new album, it is it is remarkable. It's just remarkable. And not just because there's a 16-minute song about the Kennedy assassination. The, the entire record is remarkable, and it just shows you doesn't matter what age. And and you promoted um, you know Little Stephen and the Disciples, great final show at the Beacon last year with a DVD coming out. It was an incredible, incredible night. But what are there any new, newer artists that that you're you're really excited about? Well, I guess you know some. Um, I'm I'm a real big fan of the Milk Carton Kids. I like them a lot. So many newer acts and. In the in the internet age, you really can't keep up. You have to depend on on discovering the newer acts by yourself or somebody turning you on to it. So I don't really want to go through a, a list of that, uh, you know. But there's lots of great music still out there, you know. I know that some of my generation, the boomer generation, sticks their nose up at some of the new stuff, but. You know, they're wrong. You know, they're wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, there aren't very many acts that reached the pinnacle, like the Beatles or the Stones, Zeppelin, Simon and Garfunkel. There aren't very many, if any, of the last 25 years. Rarefied air, rarefied air. But there are acts today, the low-cut Connies of the world that maybe not everybody knows that are, you know, really, really interesting, interesting acts that people have to check out. I usually end this uh, end the show with uh, Tim Ferriss's question, which he has in his Tribe of Mentors book, which is, if you were given a billboard, John, and you were allowed to put whatever message you wanted, what would that be and why? To ask the industry as a whole from the artists themselves to their managers, to their business managers, to their agents, to look upon concert promoting as an important part of their career. In this era of Live Nation and AEG, who very rarely take chances, to pay more attention to the independent promoters that are left. And there's, you know, there's a thousand of them, I think. And stop taking one-size-fits-all deals, not allowing the acts, the promoters to do any shows with them, and most importantly, 
not do any shows with him where the local promoters started the acts. You know, I, you know, they're, they're, I could give you a whole list of, of artists that I played for 20, 30, 40 years who have taken the money and run. What this COVID crisis is bringing is that there's a, a good chance that a huge percentage of the independent promoters are going to go out of business. There's zero income coming in right now. Not a lot of people wanting to invest in the live music business. So, you know, people are holding on. There's, you know, some legislation that, you know, is trying to help. There are some politicians who actually understand the need in, in, in our business. But, of course, with the bigger issues on the table, whether it be, you know, COVID or, or, or DACA or police, we're not close to the top. But for the industry to survive, you, well, let's put it this way, not going to happen this year, but you need minor leagues. You know, you need minor leagues and you need loyalty, you know. And I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but also a lot of independent promoters all over the country. We simply do a better job than the big companies. We market it better. We treat them better, but they will overpay the acts. So, you know, there's a conundrum there. There's no question there's a conundrum there. It's gotten worse and worse over the last 10 years. I have no crystal ball to know how it will change when it comes out. There's some hope for change. There's some hope for change. You know, there, there are agents and acts that I've talked to in the last month or two that basically are saying, you know, we want you to take this show, an act that, you know, I might not have had any history with. Why is that? because we don't like what AEG and Live Nation are offering us. And I found, you know, in at least a couple of cases, that the acts were very reasonable. They lowered their guarantees, they lowered their requests, and they did that for, for the two big companies too. But the two big companies apparently want more and more. And I found that in having a, a cordial relationship, whether it be the agent, the manager, whatever, and say, look, you know the same set of facts that I do. There's not going to be any concerts for a while. And when there are concerts, we have no idea what the capacity is going to be. We have no idea whether we're going to have to buy masks for every person that comes. And I'm finding the agents, surprisingly, to be honest with you, are being very reasonable. They see the same facts we do. So that could certainly extend into getting a business back together and, you know, maybe breaking up these monopolies, getting back to, you know, local promoters who care about the markets that they promote it. Yeah, so true. I think to kind of paraphrase it, what would be on your billboard, I guess, is loyalty matters. You know, it really, really does, you know. Loyalty matters and doing the job the right way matters. The amount of uh, promoters that almost openly scalp their own tickets is mind-boggling. So, you know, you can say I'm an old hippie, but, you know, it's it, it it's mind-boggling. And, you know, it's, that's an unfair competition. I won't scalp tickets. I've never scalped a ticket of my own show in my life. And I'm wrong because I've got competitors that, that have been scalping tickets for, you know, for 35 years, but it's just not in me. I might go broke, but I'm, it, it's not in me. Well, you actually have a conscience, and and as a as as a representative of of the fans out there, thank you for that because that's 
many, 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 many of us have, have suffered from, from that. And again, that, that's a whole other show. The business needs understanding from the banks. You know, when I first started out and it was Ticketron, it wasn't even Ticketmaster yet. They sold the tickets, but they held on to all the money. I remember going to, in West Orange, uh, National Newark and Essex Bank, all right, which was a big bank in New Jersey in those days. And sitting down with a bank officer, he, you know, I didn't realize it, but he certainly wasn't that high up on the totem pole. And bringing my printout of how much money and how many tickets basically that Ticketron had, all right, and consistently being able to get loans against that, which meant I never had to really take any any outside money. I know the banks were all looking at Live Nations, you know, as a public stock, AEG's not, but it would be nice if the banks saw that there was a big future in trying to help along the independents. That would be nice. That certainly would be nice. And I hope I hope we I hope we see that. John Sher, thank you so much, not just for today, but for being a huge part of, of some of my life's greatest moments, and certainly I'm sure many that are listening. It's really been an honor to chat with you today and hear just some of your stories. I mean, they're, they're just, there's so many, and I really appreciate you sharing. And I'll quote little Stephen, and I hope that we'll be out of the darkness soon and back going to see live music, and the memories are great, but we all want to put another dime in the jukebox to quote Joan Jett, you know, and, and rock out. So thank you again. Thanks to the folks at Resonate Recording for getting the show out. To you, my audience, quickly remember when saving for your future and whatever concert you want to go to, when we can go, and you will go again. Pay yourself first. Have a great week. Bye.